to get my things in order here. A couple years ago, it's your turning there, little story. A couple years ago, a Saturday Night Live's Pete Davidson, he roasted a few political candidates. It was part of SNL's weekend update. It's their quote-unquote news part of their show. Uh, I don't stay, late, stay up late enough for Saturday Night Live anymore. I guess that's a sign of getting older. Um, Pete Davidson, he poked fun at a few candidates running for the 2018 midterm elections. Among those candidates was Dan Crenshaw. He's a congressman from the state of Texas. Crenshaw is a Navy SEAL. And during his third tour of duty in Afghanistan, he lost his eye after an IED exploded on the side of the road. And Davidson, during this SNL sketch, made fun of Crenshaw's eye patch. And all the internet and all the news channels agreed on something. They agreed that Davidson crossed the line. And so next, the next week on SNL, uh, Crenshaw appeared. And Davidson apologized. Uh, Dan Crenshaw forgave him. And then he dished out some roasts of his own to Pete Davidson. Uh, but then Dan Crenshaw, he, he said something really meaningful. At that time, it was close to Veterans Day. And he suggested a different way to approach veterans like himself. He said, most people say, they will come up to him and say, thank you for your service. He said, that's fine. It's okay. But he suggested saying, never forget instead. He said, never forget the sacrifice that so many made that bind us together. And in a special moment, he turned to Pete Davidson, this goofball punk kid, and he gave an example. He told the audience never to forget somebody like Pete Davidson's father who died as a firefighter during 9-11. It was just such a unique moment of connection. Both had their guards down. In Nehemiah 9, the Israelites had their day of never forget. They had returned to the Lord, and Ezra read the law of the Lord, and they got to rehear their history. They wanted never to forget how much they had strayed. And they also wanted never to forget how much God had forgave. And now in Nehemiah 10, their never forget moment turned into a never again moment. So the main idea from this chapter is that a true return to the Lord involves submitting every area of your life to the Lord. A true return to the Lord involves submitting every area of your life to the Lord. So here's the lay of the land of how we'll go through this chapter. We'll walk through Israel's never again moments by covering four different promises. Promise one is kind of the movie Inception. It's a promise to keep their promise. And then second, promise two is a promise to keep marriages pure. Third, it's a promise to keep the Sabbath. And fourth, it's a promise to maintain worship. You'll see the outline listed in your bulletin on the right-hand side if you want to follow along. So first, a promise to keep their promise. Let's notice what led up to this moment. Look back to chapter 9, verse 38. That's the last verse of chapter 9. So if you're new to the Bible, by the way, uh, chapter numbers are the big, bold numbers in the Bible, and the verse numbers are the little, tiny ones. Just don't want to take that for granted. It's okay if you didn't know that. Chapter 9, verse 38 says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So kind of record scratch here. How did we get here? What got us to this point? What is the phrase at the beginning of this verse? 
because of all this. What does that include? All right, let's give a quick review of how we got here. You can even turn in your Bible if you would like. would encourage you to have a Bible open during this time. You can flip back to chapter 6. Just at a glance, we see by the end of chapter 6, the Israelites finish rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. Then in chapter 7, it's a big long list of names. And what they're doing there is identifying the people who could live in Jerusalem because they needed to repopulate the city after it had been decimated. In chapter 8, they begin to show how they will live once they start living in Jerusalem. So what happens is Ezra the priest reads the law and explains the law of God. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And so the Israelites, in response, they confess that they haven't lived the way that God has instructed them to live. This is what got them into exile in the first place. They were booted out of the land, carried off as prisoners by foreign countries. And so they confess their sin, and then they begin to obey what God says. And the first example of this in chapter 8 is that they observe this certain feast, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. This feast reenacted the time that Israel spent in the wilderness after they got out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. Then in chapter 9, still, how we got here, they zoom in a little bit closer on their confession. They rehearse their long history of stubbornly rebelling against God, and they rehearse God's long history of faithfully forgiving them. That's where we just left off. And so don't miss this connection. What led them to make this promise? What led them basically to rededicate their lives? What led them, as chapter 10, verse 29 says, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord? How did we get here? Well, it wasn't, hey, maybe if we get our acts together, then maybe God will love and forgive us. It wasn't that. It was, God loves and forgives us, so let's get our act together. Friends, this is the rhythm of the Bible. Grace leads to obedience. True obedience begins with God's grace and forgiveness. Don't get this backwards or it will be a dead end for you. We do not obey in order to be forgiven. God has forgiven us, so we obey. So maybe you're here today and you say something like, I want to turn over a new leaf. I want to rededicate my life. Friend, that is wonderful. And maybe that is Jesus working in your heart like we sang, that he seeks us when we were strangers, wandering from the fold of God. And I would say, just tell you, if that is you today, your first step is not something about you. Your first step is toward the cross of Christ. Ask God to forgive you based on Jesus' death in your place. Ask God to change you by giving you a new heart through his Holy Spirit. This is the rhythm. Grace leads to obedience. It's the same rhythm here. My brother and sister in Christ, we can't forget that this rhythm does not stop after we become Christians. Grace leads to obedience. May God's grace amaze us again so that our obedience can be faithful again. So just remember, maybe think about this. Just think for a moment. Do a thought experiment. 
what's the worst thing you've ever done? What's the worst thing you've ever done? I'll give you a second to think. Maybe you don't need a second to think about that. Brother and sister, if you believe in Jesus, you trust in Jesus, that is covered by his blood and forgiven. May God's grace amaze us again so that our obedience can be faithful again. Why wouldn't we want to serve and follow a God who does that, who pays and forgives our sin? So that's what led to this promise of Israel to rededicate their lives. Now, chapter 10 opens with the people who made the promise. It opens with the people who made the promise. So the list begins like this. It begins with leaders. It says the princes, the Levites, and the priests. So it goes like this. If, if we know this now, if the leaders did their part, then their example would influence other people to follow them. One commentator observes that many of the names on this list at the beginning of chapter 10, they also show, showed up at the beginning of chapter 9. And chapter 9 was when Israel prayed and confessed their sin to the Lord. So he makes this connection that the people who lead in prayer should also be the people who follow up on that and lead in action. The people who lead in prayer and talk a big game should walk the walk as well. The people who lead in prayer should lead in action. And here, these leaders call everybody else to a new life of obedience, right? And who are, who are the first ones to sign up for that new life of obedience? It's the leaders. In other words, they're not asking other people to do what they are not willing to do themselves. This is who the list starts with. But more than just the leaders who sign up for this promise, look at verses 28 to 29. It says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. These are who made the promise. Years ago, some of you might remember, uh, my dad ran the choir at Old Oak, and he was desperate for more singers. And so he would do the announcements on Sunday mornings, and one Sunday morning he decided he's going to use this new recruiting tactics, surefire way to get more volunteers. I didn't tell him about this, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> He brought a mirror with him to morning announcements. He took the mirror up, he breathed into it, and it fogged. And he told the congregation, if you can do that, you're invited to choir practice. <laughs> the people in Nehemiah 10 recognized something similar. A life of grateful, loving, thoughtful obedience. That kind of life. That isn't reserved for the people who are really religious. That isn't reserved for pastors or the, the, really, the family who's got it all together at church. This is for everybody. Everyone, it says, everyone who has knowledge and understanding, everyone who knows and understands right from wrong should know and understand that they have done wrong. They should know and understand that they need forgiveness. They should know and understand that God calls them to live for him. 
Everybody made this promise. And notice something else about the people who made this promise. Notice this group includes non-Israelites, people who aren't Jewish. You see, God's grace extended even to the pagan nations around him. Yes, those same nations who wanted to obliterate Israel. People from those countries were, making, uh, were dedicating their lives to the Lord. See how, look at verse 28. Look at how verse 28 defines what it means to belong to God's people. It says, it's not those who are a certain ethnicity. It is all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Just prayed for it a moment ago that we should weep and bemoan the atrocities happening in Afghanistan. We should pray that God would end it. We should pray that God would protect people there. But this verse, verse 28, is one of many in Scripture that should remind us to pray for God's radical grace, even to stand, even to save those who stand against Him, even to save terrorists. Pray that there would even be one member of the Taliban who God would draw out of darkness and into the light of Christ. One member of the Taliban who, would, who could be described by verse 28, who has separated himself from the people of the lands to the law of God. So here's the group that made the promise. This promise to live for the Lord again, to rededicate their lives. We got leaders, we got all the people, we even got Gentiles. And this group recognizes that the God who saved them is also the God who rules over them. See, look at verse 29. Notice how they call God our Lord. It says the Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, our master. You see, friends, all of us worship something. Even the Ten Commandments, it says you shall not serve any other gods before me. God assumes that you're going to serve some kind of God. It's just how he's made us. All of us are going to worship something. And whatever we worship will control us and will be our Lord. And we will serve it. And we say, God is our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. And as many have put it, to serve God is perfect freedom. It's what we were meant to live for. It's how we were meant to live. And so just rubber hits the road here. Maybe you've heard people tell their story. Maybe you've heard Christians tell their story, something like this. It's like, at this point in my life, I have made Jesus my Savior, but I didn't yet make him my Lord. I I mean, there's probably good intentions behind that, but we should be careful. First off, we don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's just whether or not we bow our knees to him. Second, though, the way we show that we embrace Jesus as Savior is if we follow him as Lord. In other words, Jesus is not your Savior if he is not also your Lord. So that's who made the promise. Next, we see the different kinds of promises they make. And so, God being their Lord, everything in this chapter just flows from that. It will affect every area of their lives, God being their Lord. It reminded me, you know, sometimes when people find out that I'm a pastor, 
they will act really differently around me. It's not my intention to make people uncomfortable. I hope I'm not like a killjoy in, in real life. Uh, but one, one thing that happens, maybe it happens to you too, uh, if people know that you're a Christian, is especially in sports like softball or basketball, uh, when people know I'm a pastor and they catch themselves swearing. And they say, oh, sorry, I know you're a pastor and I know you don't like hearing that. And it's true. I'll give them credit. I should be especially careful about the language that I use given the role that I have. That's a a good point. But being a pastor is not the ultimate reason I try not to swear. The ultimate reason is because Jesus is my Lord. I want to serve. I want to honor. I want to follow Jesus in everything I do. And boy, that should include how I talk. So all the promises that the Israelites make here in this chapter, they flow out from the reality that God is their Lord. They want to listen to God. They want to follow God in every area of their lives. So they say that they want to obey all the commandments of the Lord. But then they hone in on three particular areas. They hone in on marriage. They hone in on keeping the Sabbath. They hone in on worship in the temple. Just at first reading, these seem kind of random, don't they? Why these areas? Well, it's a great question. It's because these areas in particular are those that they struggled with. These are areas they neglected. These are sins they regularly committed. I think that's wisdom for you and me. Brothers and sisters, those who claim that Jesus is their Lord, what are the areas of our lives where Jesus is not reigning as our Lord? It would be wise to begin to address those areas. That's where we should start first. And so the very first area the Israelites focused on is marriage. Look at verse 30. It says, We will not give our daughters to the son, to the peop, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Okay, this is one of those points in the Bible we might be tempted to be embarrassed by, because at first blush at first blush this seems harsh. And at second blush, if we're really uncharitable, this seems bigoted. So what's the big deal about this? Why shouldn't they give their daughters to the peoples of the lands? Well, just as a review, the Israelites don't worry that they would defile their ethnicity. It's not that. They worry that they would defile their devotion to the Lord. That's what they worried they would compromise on. And didn't this happen over and over again in Israel? Book of Judges, chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, it says this. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the people of the lands. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And what happened? It says, and they served their gods. You know the story of King Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 11. It says this, Solomon loved many foreign women. What happens? A few verses later. And his wives turned away his heart. The Israelites dealt with this same sin just a few years earlier in the book of Ezra. The very end of it, Ezra chapter 9, tells us that people married foreigners who practiced abominations. Y'all, these would be abominations like killing your kids as child sacrifices to false gods. Those are the kinds of people they married. 
And it helps to ask, like, why, why would you even be interested in doing this? Maybe some little bit of background here. Back then, marriage to foreigners was tempting because it could give them certain advantages. The prophet Malachi called out the Israelites who divorced their wives in order to marry up. So it worked like this. If you marry somebody who is established and successful, then you're linked to them. Presto, all of a sudden, you are established and successful. It's a good thing nobody gets married for that reason anymore. (laughs) Brothers, sisters, we still feel this temptation as Christians. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 6 Verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? I know, even just reading that, it feels weird for me to talk about this. I hope I, just, I, hope I stand on God's word. And as a pastor, I'm, I'm not called to run every single decision of your life. But I want, to be, I want to have the same concerns that God has in his word. And so, especially to the single people here. And that's not just young people. Because we have single people who are older. And maybe one day you would think about getting married again. To the single people here. Please be careful about who you date and pursue. The Bible makes it clear that marrying somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus will make believing in Jesus more difficult for you. Ask people who wound up in those situations. Friend, if this gets your attention, it's probably worth a conversation beyond this sermon. Uh, But the point is, Jesus being our Lord should inform the person we choose to marry. And it's also because God created marriage to reflect his relationship with his people. It's clear over all the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly says that his relationship with Israel is like a husband to a bride. The Apostle Paul expands on that image in Ephesians 5 when he says God created marriage to reflect Christ's love for the church. So that means among Christians, our marriages should show how beautiful the gospel is. Our marriages should show the love of Christ. The love of Christ that is humble, forgiving, patient, persevering. If Jesus is Lord over our marriages, then that means we shouldn't treat marriage like the world treats marriage. Hebrews 13 verse 4 tells us that we should hold marriage in honor. It means we should treat it as precious So the world would throw away marriage at the drop of the hat. With God's help, we, as Jesus as our Lord, should forgive and fight to stay married. The world defines marriage in whatever way it is convenient for them. With God's help, we should live out God's good design for marriage. The world says we should pursue whatever we think will satisfy us sexually. With God's help, We want to believe that his best for us is to be faithful to our husband or wife. The world, just look at every sitcom, treats marriage like a drag. I'm not going to pretend that marriage isn't difficult. And I might be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as still a newlywed. But God would have us delight in our spouse, to dote on them, to romance them. 
We want Jesus to be Lord, even over our marriages. And so just like any other area of our lives, we've we got to be honest with ourselves. We will fail in this. <laughs> we will fail. And this is when we remember that Jesus is not just our Lord. He is also our Savior who restores, who redeems, who renews so that we live more holy. All right, that was the first set of promises. So we had a promise to keep their promise. And then that led into a promise to keep their marriages pure. And now we have a promise to keep the Sabbath. This is the third set of promises. So look at, at verse 31. It says, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So again, background on what this means. On the seventh day and the seventh year, God's people were supposed to take a break. Chill. Rest. Stop working. This reflected God's pattern of work in creation. Right from when God gave the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, he says this, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It was to reflect God's pattern of work. But keeping the Sabbath would reflect something else also. Just like every other one of God's commands, it would take faith to follow through on them. Think about this. It would take a special amount of faith to follow through on keeping the Sabbath, right? Example, think back to Exodus chapter 16. You remember when God gave manna from heaven when they're in the wilderness. Why did he do that? What was, what, what was he up to in that? He, he actually says, he gives us a little hint. He says, I'm going to give you manna from heaven every single day. And on the sixth day, I'm going to give you double manna. Two for the price of one. And it's, it, I'm not just doing this flippantly. I'm doing this to test you. I'm going to see whether or not you trust me enough that I provided you enough on the sixth day that you will actually stop working on the seventh Sabbath day was supposed to show their faith and trust that God provides. If you think about the Sabbath year, it's a special amount of faith. They worked their land for six years, and on the seventh, they had to trust God enough that God had provided enough on the sixth year to them to stop working on the seventh, and even not to collect debts on the seventh year. The Sabbath day was supposed to reflect their trust that God would provide for them. And friends, the Sabbath day was another one of Israel's besetting sins. For years, they refused to do this. The book of Second Chronicles says that this is one of the reasons why God allowed foreign nations to take them into exile. He says, I'm going to give my land rest again that it hasn't enjoyed. This is something that they refused to do for years. And so you know this as well as I do. The longer you do something, the better you get at it. The longer you sin, especially a certain sin, the better you get at it. The more ways you find to do it, the more ways you find around it to justify it and to explain it away. The longer you sin, the better you get at it. So notice the way that they make this promise in verse 30. It doesn't just say, hey, we're going to start keeping the Sabbath again. You know what they do is that they address a loophole. That's how they make this promise. 
They think, all right, what are ways we would not do this? What are ways we would potentially get around this? So they say, all right, well, if the Gentiles are the ones who set up the marketplace and who do all the work, then technically none of us have done any work on the Sabbath, so we're okay. But that wouldn't be following through on the heart of this commandment, would it? Brother and sister, what loopholes do you try to find to feel better about something you know is wrong? What loopholes do you try to find to feel better about something you do that is wrong? Another way to ask it, are you satisfied with just looking like you obey God? Or do we actually obey God from our hearts? It's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He goes on for a little while. He addresses some of the people. He says, all right, some of you think you're okay because you say, hey, listen, I've never killed anybody. I'm fine. When the, he says, all right, just because you've never killed anybody doesn't mean that you still can't treat people like garbage and you don't harbor anger in them in your heart. And he goes on, he says, hey, some of you say, some of you who are married, you say, hey, I've never laid a finger on another woman or another man. Really? Is that the bar that we're setting? Jesus says, okay, you cannot do that and still harbor lust for people all the time. And you still flirt with going over the line all the time. You don't think you're capable of doing that? Friends, when Jesus is our Lord, we care more about just looking like we follow him. We care about actually following him from our hearts. But this promise does leave us a question, though. And the question is, how does the Sabbath apply to us today? I don't know if I can answer it entirely in one sermon, but I'll do my best. As believers in Jesus, we say that Jesus fulfilled the obligations of the Old Testament law. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 17. He says he has come to fulfill the law. So Jesus is our representative. He stands in our place. And God credits to us Jesus' perfect obedience to the law. He says this perfect obedience is now like if you did it. So the Apostle Paul points out in Romans 14 that believers in Jesus are still free to observe the Sabbath, but they are not obligated to, serve, to observe the Sabbath. Romans 14, verse 5, he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Like marriage, the Sabbath ultimately points to Jesus. We look at another place like Hebrews chapter 4. In that chapter, it tells us that God has given us a better rest than just a rest from physical work one day a week. He's given us a better rest than that. He's given us rest through Christ. So friend, trust Christ and rest from having to work your way back to God. So Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And this should make a difference for how we live. Brother and sister, you can rest from having to figure out every possible scenario of how your life will go. You don't have to figure all that out. It's good to be wise and and to plan. But Jesus stands in your place. He has made you his own. You can rest. You can rest from endlessly comparing yourself to others. 
Your standing with God is based not on how you measure up against other people, but based on Jesus' perfect life and substitutionary death in your place. You can rest from being motivated by guilt to do good things. I'll raise my hand for that one. It's not to say that guilt is never appropriate, but it is to say our standing with God doesn't increase with how many more times we volunteer at the homeless shelter or how often we read the Bible or how hard we pray. Those are all great and good things. We should remind ourselves that our standing with God is already secure because we stand in Jesus, our Sabbath rest. Trust Jesus, not your good works and standing before God. Last set of promises. This won't be shorter. Promise to maintain worship in the temple. Look at verses 32 to 38. We'll read these real quickly. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God, we, like the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at a times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, to bring to the firstborn of our, first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the, the wine and the oil to the priests to the chamber of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring bring the contribution of the grain, wine, and oil to the chambers." where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. Here's the point, very end. We will not neglect the house of our God. What's going on here? We can dive into the individual parts and the background of each of it, but we don't want to miss the whole. We don't want to miss the overall point. They want to keep the house of God operating smoothly. That's the overall point. House of God is just another word for the temple. So to operate smoothly, everybody would have to pitch in. So they devote part of their time and their money to the temple service. To operate smoothly, priests and Levites would have to be able to focus on the work for which they've been set apart. So they support priests and Levites with part of their crops and their cattle. To operate smoothly, you would have to organize a way to collect funds. So priests and Levites go from town to town. They wanted the house of God to operate smoothly. That's the overall point. But why? Why did they want this? Why is this a big deal? Why is it a big deal not to neglect the house of God? Well, again, brothers and sisters, this is something that they did neglect, that they failed to do for so long. 
There were times in Israel's past when they set up false gods in the house of the one true God. And what's more, the temple was where God's presence uniquely dwelled on earth. This was a unique place. Of course, it couldn't contain all of God's presence. Even Solomon, the guy who built the original temple, recognized that. But God enabled Israel to enjoy his presence through the temple. Through the sacrifices made at the temple, blood shed in their place, a holy God could dwell among a sinful people. So they wanted to keep the temple going smoothly because they wanted to continue to enjoy God's presence and God's peace. So what does this mean for us? We stand in a way different time, a way different place. What does this mean for us? Well, the New Testament does tell us that we should support the work of gospel ministry through our finances. When we give, that we declare that we serve God, not money. We declare that Jesus is Lord even over our money. But more than that, we can say that just like marriage, just like the Sabbath, the temple points to Jesus. The temple points to Jesus. Jesus called himself the new temple. John chapter 1, it says that God the Son tabernacled among us where God's presence was unique, uniquely was on earth. And it's not just that. Through Jesus, his final sacrifice for sin, now those who trust in him enjoy God's presence, have access to it, and enjoy God's peace. And it gets even better than that. Those who trust in Jesus, they don't just enjoy God's presence. God's presence is in them. So that believers in Jesus are called the new temple. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 says, Do you not know that you, that's you all, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We declare Jesus as Lord by not neglecting the temple. And what is the temple? It's the church. Not the building, but the people. Perhaps this is why Hebrews 10 verse 25 says, not to neglect the gathering with fellow believers. Friends, if God makes his presence specially known in us, especially when we are gathered, why would we want to miss out on it? I know that Sunday to Sunday, this feels so ordinary, doesn't it? But it is not. The Apostle Paul adds to this. He pulls no punches. He says that if believers are where God's presence specially dwells, if we are God's temple, then we shouldn't get God's house dirty with sin. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price? So glorify God in your body. God would be Lord over all their lives, over their marriages, over their work, how they kept the Sabbath, and even their worship, that they would maintain it. These are areas where they struggled, but these are areas they rededicate and say, God has forgiven us, now help us to live new. You're not supposed to have favorite chapters of the Bible. I think it's kind of like having a, a favorite kid, so I'm told. Not supposed to, but you might end up having kind of a preference. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is John chapter 21. 
It's after Jesus died. It's after Jesus even rose back to life. What happens right before it is Jesus shows up to Thomas and, and Thomas touches Jesus and believes. Says, my Lord and my God. And then John 21, the focus turns to Peter. And if there was ever an elephant in the room, <laughs> it was when Jesus rose from the dead and Peter had just denied him three times. If there was ever an elephant in the room. And so John chapter 21 opens up uh, uh, where the, so many of the disciples live in Galilee. And there, Peter is doing his Peter thing. He's fishing out on a boat and Jesus comes to shore and Jesus does his Jesus thing. He says, hey, fellas, why don't you cast your net on the other side of the boat? And all the dis- disciples, wait, we've heard that before. And they start to politely row their uh, boat back to shore. But not Peter. Peter, the guy who just denied Jesus, threw off his shirt and threw himself into the water and swam hard after Jesus. The same water that he had once walked on. The story continues that Jesus restores Peter. But I, just, I, I love that brief moment, that scene, when Peter knows that it's Jesus, leaves behind his sin, and just runs toward him. And the point is, even from this chapter, we don't want to make the mistake. We are not rededicating our lives to follow a bunch of lists and rules. We dedicate to follow Jesus as Lord to run hard after him. And then everything else flows and follows after that. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for seeking us when we were strangers, wandering from the fold of God. We say this morning, search us, examine our hearts, show us the places where we have sinned regularly and just... Would you bring us face to face with the truth about ourselves? But then that, that just opens up to see the truth about you, that you are a God who forgives. And then we, we may lay down this sin at the feet of the cross. And we ask God, help us to live with you as Lord over every part of our lives. Don't let us leave this place. Don't let us go through this week without earnestly examining ourselves to see what ways we could follow you because we want to be close to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to respond to the word.